I'm Ibi, and you're listening to Kill the Cat. On this episode, we're learning to skip the boring bits with The Princess Bride. If you haven't seen the movie, we'll be spoiling most of it, so do yourself a favor and check it out first. Otherwise, enjoy the episode. Today we bring you a story of fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, and miracles. It's the Princess Bride. Woo! Before we get into it, should we talk about why we decided to do this movie? <laughs> yeah, that's a sad story. So I had two goldfish. My wife and I had wanted to get a pet. We can't have any pets in our apartment, so we we're like, we'll get fish. Um, we've named them Buttercup and Wesley. Uh, Wesley actually had like a little black line on his upper lip, so it looked like he had a mustache. Uh, so it was very fitting. Wesley passed away when we were doing our last round of recording. He was secretly off being the Dread Pirate Roberts. That's our story. Yeah. Um, and then very recently Buttercup passed away. We had decided to do this podcast episode because we had named the fish after them. And we saw now, them and like, oh, the Princess Bride, we love that movie. Everyone loves that movie. And now as we go to record the episode, they are no longer with us. So rest in yes. peace. Unfortunately, not a happy ending like the movie no. gives us. But no. anyway, that's why we decided to do the Princess <laughs> yes. Bride. <laughs> so uh, Princess Bride, written by William Goldman, who also wrote the book, and directed by Rob Rayner. Really one of the great adventure, like fantasy adventure stories out of the 80s. Really kind of epitomized this sort of parody side of fantasy. Um, I feel like there's really, yeah, there's kind of bad fantasies. Then there's like really good serious ones. And then there's really good parody ones. So you really good serious ones. Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. If you want to bring like the sci-fi ones into it, we've got Star Wars, it's that kind of fantasy. Yeah. So then the other side to that is the parody ones, uh, which are your Robin Hood men in tights. And probably the more modern take is like Shrek. Or even Disenchantment on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like if you don't really go for one of those, you kind of end up in this weird uncanny valley of fantasy that just doesn't kind of work. Like, I think the ones that people remember are the ones that go for one of these. With Princess Bride almost always being the sort of reference for the parody ones. Like Shrek, you look at Lord Farquaad and he kind of looks like Prince Humperdinck. He does a bit. Yeah. like That's so true. There's so much reference. And even in personality, just a little, mm. yeah, there's touches there. There. Yeah. So we want to talk about, I guess, what makes this film work because... It shouldn't work. That was my main <laughs> thought when I was... So this is one of those movies that I don't remember watching for the first time. It's just kind of always existed for me, like a lot of movies that you watch when you're a child. Matilda would be another one. A lot of the early Disney mm. ones, they've just sort of always existed in my brain. So watching it as an adult and trying to figure out why does this work... Yeah, beyond just nostalgia. It's I, a weird movie. I, so in I, a great way, but it yeah. is. I watched Princess Bride for the first time as an adult. I didn't watch it till I was, uh, I think, like 23 or something. So a few years ago. And I loved it instantly. So for me, I, I guess I don't have that nostalgia hit for it. And it still works. And so, yeah, I guess looking through some of the reasons that it works, I think there's a lot of things to look at. Where should we start? I think we should start with... Okay, so when William Goldman was writing the book, he approached it as a great epic tale that he had heard as a child and now as an adult he could only remember just the best bits 
And the moment I heard that, I'm like, okay, this movie now makes sense to me because he's just taken the best bits of this big story and he's made the screenplay about that. So all the things that Ibby listed in the beginning, which is a quote from the grandfather character, it's just all of those things. It's none of the boring bits. Yeah. Which is really hard to do in a movie because you're usually trying to get across exposition and mm-hmm. plot mechanics and character development. Yeah. Like there's all, you always have to end up with, you know, those simple staple scenes where just two people are kind of talking to each other. Uh, and this script is really clever in that it finds a lot of really interesting ways to dodge those things. Before, I guess before we get into how they do that, let's talk about the framing device. Yes. Um, because I think that's really important to, for me, what I see is sort of the main theme for the film, um, but then also for, I think, how it kind of does that best bits thing. Yeah, so this movie really doesn't work without the framing device. The framing device is a grandfather has brought his favourite book to read to his grandson who is uh, stuck sick in bed. And that book is The Princess Bride. And we continually cut back and forth Less and less so as the story goes on, but the boy acts as our stand-in. So at the beginning, he's kind of like, oh, it's a love story, it's soppy, I don't want to watch this. And then he starts to get hooked. And they even have like that clever bit where Buttercup's about to be attacked by an eel, and they like smash cut right back to the framing device story. And the boy's like, no, no, I, I want to know what happens now. And it's almost the movie kind of being like, aha, I told you. I told you you were going to like the story. Now you're hooked. Mm. Yeah. So one of the things for me that the framing device does, and this may be contentious because I think I disagree with the director here. Um, When I watch this movie, the primary theme I get is the joy of story. And I get that from the story of the grandpa and the grandson. I think one of the interesting things is that, you know, that's almost becoming kind of the story of how people are watching the movie now 30 something years on because most people who are going to get exposed to it now like it'll be people showing their kids or the grandkids which is kind of this really sweet thing uh, rob rayner sort of talks about the fact that he really wanted to make the film about true love and that was kind of one of his primary themes i think for me i find that almost such a blatant theme in the film that it kind of becomes an element of the parody for me. It's such a cut and dried love story. Mm. There's nothing wrong with that. And we'll get into tropes and fairy tale tropes later. But yeah, for the longest time when I was watching, I was like, yeah, of course, it's about the power of true love. But no, I think you're right. I think it's almost more about the joy of story. Mm. And it's this kind of true love where, again, we just get the best bits. We just get the story. Yeah. And the story as well. Like, you know, we see the joy of story epitomized in the the character of the grandson because he starts out going, oh, I don't want to do this. This is a book. How he boring. wants to watch his sports game. Come on, yeah. granddad. And then he's like, oh, I don't want kissing. And then by the end, he's like, oh, no, I'm, I think I'm okay with a little bit of kissing. He's so in the story. And by the very end of the film, he asks the grandpa to come back and read it to him the next day. For me, that kind of says hey, the theme is actually about just the joy of sharing story together. And maybe it's the filmmaker storyteller within me that loves that theme. But I think for me, yeah, that stands out as being primary over all the other secondary themes that come through the actual story within the story. And I think I love that last bit at the end. He's like, oh, it's kissing. You don't want to read this. He's like, no. And it's like the big kiss. Mm. It's something along the lines of there were five, like, most romantic kisses in the world and this trumped them all that's not the quote i'm so sorry but it's something like that and it's like the most romantic kiss of all time which is so unbelievably corny but at that point you're fully invested 
you're mm-hmm. on board. You want them to kiss so badly. Yeah, and I think I, I love this film because it's obviously it's a parody and it really goes for it. But it goes for it in a way where I don't feel like it becomes a film that I would call self-aware. You get some that kind of start to break the fourth wall with their parody, whereas this one, I feel always still feel like I'm in the world of the story, even though I'm very aware that there's all these convenient things happen and it leaning right into all of the fantasy tropes. Yeah, I think the story does it really well. Uh, why don't we talk about some of those tropes? Like, Yeah, that's and actually just one more point on the parody. I actually found it increased as the movie went on, yeah. which is really odd. Like, If you think about Shrek, Shrek starts full parody, right? But the more it goes on, the more sincere it becomes. There's more the Shrek and Fiona love story. This kind of goes the opposite way. When I said this was a weird movie, this is another thing that like made me think that. So in the end, we get like Wesley's back from the dead, but he's like all floppy. Which I've just got as floppy Wesley, my notes. And then we got like the vision at the wedding who's saying Mowage. 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 Is what brings us together. Doing like the most serious bit of the film. Yeah. We've got that whole sequence with like Miracle Max and his wife. What a great character. It's just like this weird like comedy skit. Yeah. And again, this is when the stakes are like super high. Mm. Another reason this movie shouldn't work, but it does. Because tropes. Let's talk about tropes. So one of the things we were talking about before is this kind of doesn't feel like one fairy tale. It almost feels like a world of fairy tales where everyone's kind of living their own little adventure and Mm. they get to meet up along the way. And that's really fun. I think that's part of the reason this movie feels like still fresh 30 Mm. years later. It's not just another love story. We also have... Inigo Montoya. Yeah. Who killed my father, prepared to die. We also have his story of like he wants to avenge his father. We even have the tale of the Dread Pirate Roberts, which feels like a Sinbad kind yeah. of style adventure. Yeah, we just feel like we're in this world of story. One of the things I wrote in my um, notes is that it's, uh, it's full of exciting action in interesting places, right? You've got the Fire Swamp. Isn't even cleverly named. It's, it's, really just, it's just the Fire Swamp. And it's got quicksand which is a trope in itself. I'm like, I think it definitely is. Like, especially in that era, it was just like everyone was dealing with quicksand. And I'm like- What do they call the rodents? The extremely large the, rodents? The rodents of unusual size. That's the one. The R-O-U-S's, yes. which he calls them the R-O-U-S's in the film. Um, they have the cliffs of insanity. Pit of despair. The pit of despair. They're not even trying to like not make this a parody. On the it's nose. The, yeah, it's very like, on Even the... just Princess Buttercup, as we're talking about names. Mm. like. And so, you know, you have these interesting places that aren't necessarily cleverly named, um, but they have some really great action happening. So we have the sword fight. We have Wesley fighting actually a few people. So he fights Inigo. And it's this very, you know, respectable battle where they're both uh, quite impressed with each other. They're great. They're both great sportsmen. Like that's what makes that battle so great. Mm. That and the left-handed bit. Uh, Every time I'm like, yes. (laughs) It even gets to a point where they mention Australia and I'm like, Australia doesn't exist in this world. This is fantasy world. It's one odd moment in an otherwise like pretty perfect film. That and Wesley threatens to slap Buttercup, which is not aged well. No. 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 It's unfortunate. Anyway. So we have exciting action in interesting places. What are some other tropes? So they use a lot of tropes from fairy tales. So the biggest one, I think that we all know um, in terms of culture, the rule of three. Massive in fairy tales like Goldilocks would be a good example. Heroes usually have to go on three quests, etc, Mm -hmm. etc. So it's used the first time. So we almost have like a quest and then a bigger quest where Wesley has to save Buttercup twice. So the first one, he has to overcome three trials has to sword fight, has to fight Andre the Giant's character, and then he has to outsmart Vizzini. Mm-hmm. Three quests. 
And then in the fire swamp, he has to overcome yes. three obstacles of it. There's the, uh, the fire. fire, there's the quicksand, or the lightning sand, I think they call it, and the rodents of unusual size. Yes, yeah, so three trials to pass, and even like Inigo asks for three things before he kills the six-fingered man. And then we get three fairy tales as well. So we get Wesley and Buttercup, we get Inigo Montoya, and we get the Dread Pirate Roberts. So what makes these fairy tales? Why do they all feel like classic stories we would have told, just like the way we would have told like Hansel and Gretel or Cinderella? A few things, so we've got like all the trope characters, we've got villains, we've got pirates, we get princesses, we've got heroes, the fantasy elements of the swordplay, the pirates quests. And then we have the repetition, which is used probably most famously with my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die. Well, at the end, he's just repeating it over yeah. and over, and that's his motivation. And that's a, I've seen that like on pins that people wear on their clothing, this quote. The other famous one is, as you wish, said so many times in the beginning, and then obviously when it's revealed to be Wesley, and he's falling down the hill and says, as you wish. Mm. Um, and the other one, in the Dread Pirate Roberts, the commonly repeated phrase is, good night, Wesley, I'll most likely kill you in the morning. Yeah. And he says that over and over again. So we've got these fairy tales, and beyond just tropes of fairy tales, we have very trope, almost two-dimensional characters. One of the things that I think this film, and like doing research for this film kind of made me realize, is how important archetypes are to comedy and to parody. So when you do a drama, right, you want a three-dimensional character, you, uh, you know, Mindhunter, the TV series super interesting on a character level right you're dealing with all these interesting people i don't think that works in comedy and i think the reason for that is that parody and comedy is more about genre than about character and so really your genre is kind of what becomes three-dimensional in the ways you mess with it and play on the tropes. And your characters kind of need to be not two-dimensional in a bad way, but like they need to play to their archetypes in order to allow the space for the genre to be messed with. Yeah, and when we say like comedy, we're talking more on the parody side. Definitely on the parody side. But they use this in other films too, like think about say Star Wars. That is pure genre. Gotta say, character's pretty two-dimensional, pretty tropey. That's Nothing fair. wrong with that. It works for that movie. It's the very classic hero's journey that they teach in schools. Mm. And not saying they're not three-dimensional character, but you immediately recognize totally. Luke Skywalker as the hero. You automatically recognize that Han Solo is the outlaw. Yeah. We, we pinpoint, obviously, like Darth Vader. The villain. The villain, of yeah. course. <laughs> Talking about like um location names. The Death Star. What does it do? It's a star that does death. Cool, Death Star, yeah. good name. Yeah. We went through some archetypes that we had for these characters mm. based on the classic 12 archetypes. So I'll post a link to that in the show notes if you guys want to check that out. Let's start with Wesley. He's the hero. Yeah. We recognize the hero. Instantly. He's introduced that way. He's introduced as our main character. He does all the things a hero is meant to do. He's brave. He fights with a sword. He's moving to save the damsel in distress. Classic He's hero. hero. Uh, we have Indigo, who is the outlaw. So that's someone who exists outside of the law. We have Humperdinck, who archetype is the ruler. Buttercup's archetype, she's the innocent. Uh, Buttercup is kind of your very classic damsel in distress. Yeah. So it's nothing wrong with because it's genre. That's what the film is. But we recognize this. We recognize that there's a princess. There's not a prince, but like Wesley is going to go save her. Yeah. He's our hero. We recognize Vizzini as the villain. We recognize Humperdinck as the villain. Yeah. And that's okay because we're very quickly, we know where we stand. Yeah, I, th I think for me, this movie, the characters are archetypal enough that we quickly understand them and then there's stuff added to flesh them out a little bit more, you know, in Nigo's backstory as to why he is the way he is. And I, one of the things I love about this movie is that all the good guys are like good sportsmen. 
Yeah. Like, that's kind of one of the things, like, Andre Physic. the Giant's character, Physic, and Indigo, they survive Wesley because they're good sports. Yeah. So he doesn't kill them, but he does kill Fazzini, who has cheated. And yeah. Humperdinck as well, he doesn't even kill Humperdinck. He leaves him to, like, be alive with his cowardice. Yeah. Which in this is phrased as, like, a fate worth, uh, worse than death. Mm. To the pain. Yes. Is the, is the whole thing he goes on. Oh, yeah. how good is that scene? Oh, he's listing, like, all the body parts he's going to chop off. Yeah. I'll leave you your ears. That's a classic fairy tale in itself. Like, a little microcosm of one. Just very memorable. So, yeah, so we've got these archetypes, and all of them also have a very singular goal. And we're told what that is very early on. It makes it really easy to root for them. It makes the stakes really clear. Wesley wants to be with Buttercup. Buttercup wants to be with Wesley. Humperdinck wants to marry Buttercup. There's like a bit of a twist later. We say, oh no, I actually want to kill her. Interestingly, uh, Humperdinck and Vizzini have the exact same goal. They do. To start a war. Which is kind of like one of those plot lines that is... It's I, complete, I always forget. Same. I completely forget that that's like a whole subthread and like kind of the reason that Buttercup's in this mess is like yes. she's marrying Humperdinck because he wants to start a war and Vizzini kidnapped her to try to and start, start the war. same war. Which is great because I think that's a wonderful example of just the best bits. Mm. I don't think they really say who the war is with. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. All we know that if Buttercup dies, there's going to be a war and that will be bad. That's mm. all we need to know. Going back to that simplistic fairy tale archetypal storytelling. Yeah. I'd love to um, talk a little bit about some of the ways they skip the boring bits. I was, when I started watching it with the framework of just the best bits, my instinct was to go, okay, well, how are they making sure... Like, every movie has a couple of bits that are forgettable and boring. Like, that's just part of it. You know, it's the transitions between the best bits. And it was really interesting watching how this movie kind of got around that. So one of the first ways they do it, because the first half of the story is quite linear in that it's sort of just everything is happening. You know, there's little time jumps, but there's no like, oh, we've skipped a few days. I think the biggest time jump is um, when they go from like day to evening when they're sailing. So one of the first ones we see is when Wesley is going from fighting Inigo to going to fight Vesic. Instead of watching... Wesley go there, we then see Humperdinck tracking Wesley. And that is our sort of thing to allow Wesley time to the next scene. And then, so he fights Fezzik and we cut back to Humperdinck tracking Wesley. And then we do that repeat until they reunite. They roll down the hill. He says, as you wish, Buttercup rolls down the hill with him and they go to kiss. We know that they're about to go to the fire swamp, but we managed to skip all of that stuff of them getting there. Because we have the framing device. Because we have the framing device the kid doesn't want to see them kiss. And so that's how the film jumps out of that. And the grandpa goes, oh, okay. And he starts to read the story again and he goes too early. So the kid's like, no, you read that bit already. So he skips ahead and ends up actually skipping a whole bunch of stuff. Interestingly, they skip ahead the eel attack using oh, the do, same they? technique. They don't deal with how that happens. Doesn't matter, it's not Fezzik the best just, bit. Fezzik best just bit. picks her up out of the water. The um, best bit is the eel attack. Yeah. Then you move on. Yeah sort of the second half of the film but it does skip time a bit more but it cuts just from the wedding prep and stuff happening at the castle to rescuing Wesley. I think one of the things that really serves this is having those multiple storylines going on. Everyone has a goal and so there's always someone else to cut to right it's that meanwhile back at the ranch kind of technique. I also enjoyed that especially later when they're cutting between like Wesley's quest and Inigo's quest 
They're two separate quests, like they're kind of connected in that mm. the six-fingered man is associated with Humperdinck. But it was, I thought it was an interesting choice to not have like a side character doing some side stuff for Wesley. He's off on his own quest and we're yeah. with him on that quest. Yeah, and it's interesting because I feel like the climax of Inigo's quest is the more emotional one. Because when he gets stabbed, I think because he's not the main character, I, that's like the moment when you're like, oh, he could die. Yeah, he could fail his quest. He could fail. And I think whenever something bad happens to Wesley or to Buttercup, they'll often cut away to the framing device to be like, it's a story, don't worry. Mm. And because the whole overt theme is true love always prevails. So we kind of know true love has to prevail. That's why Miracle Max can do his thing. That's why Wesley can be only partly dead. It's funny, like as cliche and predictable as that is, I also like that the movie kind of lies to us twice. Like there's one where they say like obviously Wesley's dead and you're like no wait no I don't want that and there's another one the whole like false ending where he lies to the kid he's like Buttercup marries Humperdinck that's yeah. the end and I like how that like shows us like a different ending mm. that we and we're like no no I don't want this yeah. I want the cliche no, predictable ending please yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right you're telling it wrong Dad. Yeah. she can't marry Humperdinck yeah I think one of the things that I love in this movie and again, coming sort of back to characters, is just how memorable they've made some of the characters. People so like memorable. Miracle Max. Every character kind of has something to them. There's the albino in the pit of despair. There's Vizzini, who's, you know, inconceivable. inconceivable. Well, that's another, like, repetition. Yeah, everyone yeah. kind of has a little thing. Fezzik likes to make little couplets. Yeah. Which is so charming. Yeah, and also just, he's a giant. He's a like, massive, yes. There's <laughs> the six-fingered man who has six fingers. That's his whole shit. That's the thing. Inigo, obviously. You killed my father, I'm prepared to die. Buttercup and Wesley. As you wish. Yeah. I feel like Buttercup doesn't really get a thing, which is a bit unfortunate, but... Yeah. It's of its time. It's true. I Also going back to, like, skipping the boring bits, just the way, like, plot conveniences happen and you're totally fine with it. Mm. I think my favourite one is when Inigo's looking for Wesley in the Pit of Despair and he has the sword. He's like, guide my sword. And he's walking around and he just happens to walk into the tree with yeah. the knob that opens the door. But I think because, like, it's so silly and it's so fun. And we're in a fairy tale. Like, of but course he's going to find trophy, Wesley. Right? It's yeah, very like, trophy. You know, the amulet that guides you to the thing you need. Instead, it's just this sword and it's this divine intervention that's happened. And it's kind of done in a way that's so silly that we're not sure if it's divine intervention. Or if you just stumbled into it and we're kind of fine with either one. Yeah, like, both are kind of as funny as each other yes because so one is just really parodying the genre and the other is just really silly coincidence and i think like we also just really really want these characters to succeed they're very cut and dried who's good who's bad yeah and good characters are designed like they are the witty ones they are the polite ones they are the fun ones mm. and i think part of the reason this movie really works is kind of its two male protagonists inigo and wesley is they're fun yeah they're not super serious they're not like, for instance, like James Marsden's character in Enchanted, which is very like, I will save the princess. Yeah. He's great in that film. He's so good in he's, that film. He's almost like more of a humperdink. Like, yes. Yeah. He, I will save the princess and be heroic. It's kind of interesting going back to archetypes. Wesley, as much as he's the hero, he's kind of got a little bit of the roguish archetype in him. Like, oh, that, because of yeah, his... Yeah, because he's kind of the outlaw as well as the hero. Yeah, because his beginnings are as a farmhand. He's not set up as a, I mean, I guess heroes can be set up from small, like sort of zero to hero stories, but the way he gets there is through piracy. He becomes an outlaw. 
And so it's kind of like the mirroring of Inigo and Wesley, but one plays slightly more to the hero side and one really leans into the outlaw side. So this little movie from the 80s, which by the way is my favorite screenplay. Like I probably wouldn't rate it as one of my favorite movies. Okay. But it's my favorite screenplay. So when I'm doing like script reading or script coverage and we got the pass, consider and recommend. Uh-huh. A quick breakdown for anyone who doesn't recognize those terms. A pass is a pass, like no thanks. Yeah. Um, a consider is when you pass it on to the studio heads and you're like, maybe. And then there's like the highly coveted recommend, which is you must read this now. Yeah. And my kind of like standard for a recommend was, can I get to the end of this without checking the page numbers? Princess Bride took that even further and I totally forgot I was reading a screenplay. Yeah, wow. Which is so hard to do. I just got sucked in. I'm like, I'm just reading a really, really good story. Yeah. And Tarantino has a quote and I'm paraphrasing, but it's like a screenplay should be good in itself. You should get to the end and almost feel like you finished something great. Mm. And I know there's a lot of talk about like screenplays are blueprints for movies, but no, they should be like a great read all on their own as well. There's movies I've loved and I've read the screenplay and it just hasn't quite appealed to me in the same way as the movie did. Yeah. And for this one, reading the screenplay equaled the movie. Like I got yeah. that sucked into it. That's cool. It reads like a fairy tale. So with that, one of your favorite screenplays, how would you take what they've successfully done in this film, the things that have worked and use it for your own writing? I think the thing I really learned from rereading the screenplay and going back and rewatching the film is that it's okay to use things like archetypes and genre tropes and you can still make a great original funny movie and you can use things like tropes and archetypes to very quickly tell the audience this is the world you're in this is the story this is the characters this is probably where it's going and once they know they're there that gives you such like a playground to go in and try other stuff like the left-handed sword fights and the three quests and getting to make your own fairy tales. In some ways, like fairy tales are the simplest form of storytelling. And it's fun to go back and like write those and look at those and be like, why have these existed in our consciousness for so long? There's a reason we've been telling Cinderella for however many centuries Cinderella has been around. I think I've probably got a similar response. I think for me, it's not being afraid of tropes, like of archetype characters. Putting the research into this movie and like thinking about it kind of made me realize when I look at a lot of my favorite movies, especially comedies, it's amazing how many of them just go for archetypes so that they can play. Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, two examples. Their main characters are all archetypes. Sean's like, an everyman. And they get thrown into an extraordinary world, which is what you want to do to your everyman. Yeah. Reading. And then Hot Fuzz, we have a hero who has who is sent into a world with seemingly no battles for him to fight. Yeah. And um, you know, Nice Guys, which we talked about, you got this hard, gritty detective and you've got the incompetent detective. Absolutely. And it's like, oh, actually playing to these stereotypes and these archetypes, it's actually really good for comedy. And it's that thing of um, when you are trying to create something and you have just open fields to play with, you don't know where to go. But when you give yourself sort of guidelines for what you're creating, uh, I always find, yeah, that's a much more creative space for me. And so I think for me, the thing I'm going to be trying is going, okay, if I have these archetypes that I'm going to use, how can I play with those rule sets? Yeah, and definitely. And I think I see in a lot of young writers and a lot of new writers, they just want to break all the rules. They want to be fresh. They want to be original. They want to mm. throw all these th- things in. Like, no, it's like, it's okay to use these templates and these archetypal characters. It's okay to start there. Mm. It does not mean that your story is going to be one that's told a hundred times before. You can still be original. Hmm. And, and this movie goes like to Princess show. Bride. Yeah, because this movie takes all of the tropes. 
all of the fairy tale stuff we're used to and still somehow it's brilliantly original. Shall we end there? As you wish. Today we're bringing you a story and it's a story about... Fighting. No, I got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha